We are in Ephesians, and we are continuing to unpack Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 1. And um, this morning's going to be a little bit... um, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. This is, uh, you're my guinea pigs. This, I've preached this passage, I don't know, probably a dozen times over the years, and I, and I just love this passage. This is the first time that I've broken it up into individual sermons, though. I, I usually preach this as a single sermon with three points, and, and you get really comfortable with a passage after you've sat in it that long. And um, what I found, though, was, was that um, as I just started studying this passage, and specifically our concept this morning, which is hope, um, I needed to push in for more clarity myself. And so um, we're going to sit, uh, really, in, in, in Ephesians on a single sentence, actually a part of a sentence, and, and a single concept of hope and how important and profound it is for us. Um, I created some diagrams, which is not normally what I do. So if they're helpful to you, great. Write them down. If they're, if they're distracting to you, just don't look, okay? Um, keep your eyes up here, and, and we'll do okay, all right? So um, that's where we're going. We're going to be looking at hope this morning, and I'm just going to kind of give you the cliff notes up front. <clears throat> I think most of us, honestly, um, life is, is for most of us a process of learning how to live in um, a comfortable place, or as comfortable as you can make it, a, a place of quiet despair. Most of us don't live lives driven by vibrant, bold hope. Most of us live lives of... Um, of, of self-protection. And, and the reason is that because uh, hope hurts when it disappoints. And, and, and we're going to talk about how the gospel gives us a greater hope for living than any other message ever. Um, so we're, that's where we're going this morning. We, we have a, a sure thing in the hope of the gospel that, that really should transform the way we walk through every day. So we're going to be taking a look practically at that this morning. Um, in coming series, in the, in the coming two weeks, we're going to be looking at the other two points Paul makes in, in this prayer, um, which are that, that we have a greater purpose for living than, than we know, and we have a greater power to live that life than we understand. And we need the Spirit of God to open our eyes to the reality of those things. We need the Spirit of God to open our eyes to the, the hope to which we've been called. We need the Spirit of God to open our eyes to the purpose that drives our lives, that He has a, the riches of His inheritance in, in, in the saints. We need Him to, to open our eyes to the power that we have to live our lives, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so that's where we're going this, this morning and over the next two weeks. Um, we've already covered in the beginning of chapter 1 the theological framework of the gospel. At the beginning of, of, of Ephesians 1 is, is an incredibly important passage. It's a, it's a satellite view of the gospel. It's God's perspective from eternity to eternity of the gospel. And we see God, the Trinity, three who's, one what, operating together for the redemption of lost people, to, to take sinners and turn them into saints. And, and as you go through Ephesians 1, we kind of unpack this, that God the Father has planned for all of eternity to have a plan of rescue, that God the Son is the hero of that story, that, that He's the one that actually breaks into time, uh, becomes one of us, so fully identifies with us that He essentially, even though He's perfect, becomes our sin. Even though he, He's holy, He becomes everything about us that's not right, and He ends up dying in our place. He ends up taking our place in judgment, dying the death we deserved, um, and, and then rising again a new life for us. He's the hero of the story. And then we see the Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, taking the message of the gospel 
and making it alive to our hearts, opening our eyes to the beauty of Christ and letting us see that this is a message of, of, of grand deliverance and of hope where he will set all things right again. And it's the Spirit's job this morning to continue to open our eyes. And that's what Paul is praying at the beginning. In verse 15, he says, For this reason, because we have such an incredible message of the gospel, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, because you believe the gospel, I've heard of it, that you, you believe the gospel, and, and the evidence of it is clear because the gospel has come in and, and caused you to love other people in new ways, which is what the gospel does. I don't cease to give thanks for you. My heart is continually in a posture of gratitude, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the source of all that is glorious, of all that is worthwhile, of all that lasts, the Father of glory, may give to you His Spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, that we might discover more of what we have in relationship with Him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. It's the Spirit's job to continually open our eyes to what we have in the gospel, that, that, that He continually brings us into an awareness of these blessings, specifically that you may know what is the hope of His calling, that you may know the hope to which He has called you. See, the Spirit has come in and, and made us alive to the gospel. If you've ever had your heart stirred at the preaching of the gospel, if you've ever heard someone give a presentation of, or, or uh, give you the message or even read the scripture where it talks about who Jesus is and what he's done for you, and you've had your heart stirred in that demonstration, you see in Jesus a, a demonstration of love that has caused you to love him in return, that's the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of God coming in and opening your eyes to the beauty of Christ. And we need the Spirit of God to keep coming in and opening our eyes to the beauty of the hope to which he's called us. Because the Spirit is the one that comes in and, and essentially makes the gospel come to life. And there's a hope that comes with the message of the gospel. And it's a hope that's better than any other hope in life. It is the message of hope that we need. And it's absolutely essential for life. Absolutely essential. And, and that's not just preacher talk, you guys. Like preachers get up all the time and they're, this is the most important thing. This is essential. Hope is essential for life. It absolutely is. A guy named uh, Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a psychologist, um, a Jewish man who went through the Holocaust, and he wrote about his experiences in the concentration camp. And, and he was a student of human psychology, a student of human behavior, and, and so he observed himself as he went through um, the concentration camp, and he observed others. And obviously, I don't agree with all of his conclusions because I don't agree with many of his premises, but he made some, some insightful um, uh, uh, comments about the nature of man coming out of this. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and in this, he came to two key conclusions. One is that love is the highest goal to which man can aspire. And he came to this conclusion because one night he was on, a, on a, basically a death march. They were marching him and a group of men um, in the middle of the night in the freezing cold. They were starving. They were hungry. They were cold. Beautiful stars just added to the freezing. Uh, they had no idea where they were going to. Um, and and they, they were tired. They were hurting. They were abused. They were afraid. And one of the guys on the march just leaned over to him and, and said something about his wife. And that caused Victor to just ha be filled with these memories of his wife. And, and, and so he started thinking about her and, and, and their time together. And um, he had no idea where she was currently. But this is what he found, that just in the thought of her, there was a warmth in his chest. 
just, just in remembering the love they had together, there was a rebirth of hope. That there was something that happened in him as he simply remembered the love that they shared together that, that made life worth living. And from that, he came to this conclusion that love is the highest goal to which man can aspire. That, that is, it is the single most valuable thing in life. That it's more valuable than money. It's more valuable than success. It's, it's more valuable than achievement. It's more valuable than being remembered. It's, it's more valuable than, than anything else we set our, our hopes on. The experience of love is the greatest thing to which we can aspire because it's, it's the single most powerful thing that makes life worth living. That was his first observation. His second was that hope is essential for survival. Hope is essential for survival. There were men in the camp who despaired. They gave up hope, and, and they would just go curl up in the corner and die. Not, not because of the starvation, not because of the beatings, not because of, but because they completely lost the will to live. You guys, hope is essential for life. If we don't have hope, we'll die. It, it is absolutely essential. Victor said this in talking about those men. He said, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in camp had to first succeed in giving him hope for the future. Any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in camp had to first succeed in giving him some kind of hope for the future. All right, this is where we're going, you guys. The gospel meets our need for hope. And in fact, gives us a message that should inspire more hope in us than anything else in life. It should make us the boldest. Like, like, I mean, it's just sad. So many religious people just kind of going through the motions and, and living their religious lives and going to church and reading their Bible and just doing all the right things. And they're really just kind of treading water. They just, you know, I mean, they, they, they're just kind of going through the motions. And you know why? It's because in their religious behavior, they have cushioned themselves from all the disappointments of hoping too much. We, we all do it. Religious people do it. Irreligious people do it. We don't like to be disappointed. It hurts, and so we self-protect. What I'm telling you is that the gospel should make you a radical risk-taker when it comes to hope. It should fill us with a bold hope, a risk-taking hope, <laughs> because it's a hope that ultimately takes us to the place that we desperately want to be. You guys, hope is essential for human existence, and we need to believe that ultimately there is something worth living for, something that is greater than ourselves that will ultimately fulfill us. So let's take a minute and just define hope. Let's just start with the definition of our term. Okay, hope is, throw it up there. There we go. Hope is um, the anticipation of the fulfillment of a present desire. It's the expectation or the anticipation of a fulfillment of a present desire. Let me put it in, in layman's terms. You want something and you think you're going to get it. That's hope. You want something and you eagerly think you're going to get it. There are things that you want that you don't really expect to get, right? I love Corvettes. I really don't expect to be driving one anytime soon, all right? 
So, so I can't say that's a legitimate hope in my life. That, that's an aspiration maybe. And it's not even really an aspiration because I'm not working toward it. It's just something that, yeah, that'd be cool if I had a great uncle that died and left me a Corvette that was perfect in pristine condition in his garage. Suddenly that hope would become alive and it would be fulfilled, right? But, but we do this all the time. We have desires. We want things and we look forward to that desire being satisfied. Hope is always rooted in desire. Hope is always rooted in desire. You want something. You need something, or at least you think you need something. And so it drives you to hope for fulfillment of that, that expectation. And, and you know what it feels like when that is, is satisfied, right? You know what that feels like when you get the thing you hope for. We call that joy, <laughs> right? You get joy when, when your hope is satisfied. It kind of looks like this, right? I mean, some of you are Cardinals fans. Others of you should be. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> spoken from a true guy that's I'm a total seasonal fan. Um, this was obviously the other night after they came back from, you know, I mean, it was the worst thing in baseball is when the Cardinals have two outs and they're down to the last strike. I mean, that's the worst thing for any opponent in baseball. They came back, um, did what had never been done before, and, you know, erased a six-run deficit, and they won. I mean, that's celebration. Look at their faces. You know that feeling? I mean, just exuberant celebration, exuberant joy. You know why? Because they had a desire that was fulfilled. And, and there was a while there where they thought it wasn't going to be. Like, it just seemed farther and farther and farther away. And then suddenly it was there. And some of you, like, know that because you're like rabid baseball fans. You know, you weren't just watching the game. You were living the game, right? That was on in your TV, but it was on in your heart. You're like, yeah! I mean, you were just like running out to the mound with them alone in your living room. Yes! Right? because you understand the joy of a desire fulfilled. That hope fulfilled brings joy. But there's a flip side to hope, a dark side to hope, and that is sometimes hope isn't fulfilled. This is the look of disappointment. Now, for some of you who are evil and wicked, you're taking joy in that. You're looking at that and going, your disappointment makes my joy better, right? You're wicked. Let's just admit it. This, is, um, this, this guy, Storin, was the closer. He's the one that was supposed to close out the game and save it for the Nationals. He's a class act. Um, I've been online. I've been reading some of his stuff and listening to his comments. Um, his job was to ultimately just get the final out, but he couldn't. He just couldn't get the final out, and he ended up losing the game. And, and in the press conference afterwards, he said the most painful thing about this is I feel like I let my team down. I feel like I let my city down. He's like, it's going to take me months to get over this. I may never get over it. That's what he said. That's disappointment. And the reason I'm putting this up here is not so we can gloat, but because we've all felt that, haven't we? Haven't we all felt that, that profound sense of disappointment? When you have traveled, like you're just moving through desire and it feels like the thing that you want is so close. It's right there in your hand. And as soon as you go to grab it, it's gone, right? The closer you get to the fulfillment of your hope to have it taken away at that point only increases the pain of the disappointment. The problem is we're continually putting our hope in the wrong things and so we're always disappointed and and, and this is a perfect example of that. I mean, this guy's a class act, and, and, and I have no doubt he's, he's, you know, 
um, going to have to work through his disappointment. But he, he's getting death threats. Some fans, their hope is so set on winning a baseball game that they're, they're giving death threats to the guy who lost it. Talk about misplaced hope. They're, they're, what they're basically saying at that point is, is my whole identity was wrapped up in us winning this thing. I was so bent on the fulfillment of this hope, and it didn't come, so therefore I'm justified in, in lashing out and killing. And as crazy as that seems, we do that all the time. Have you ever been disappointed and then murdered somebody with your words? Been nasty to somebody with your attitude? Felt justified in just being a pill? That's because we are broken in the way we hope. Now, here's here's the thing, you guys. We know that hope is dangerous, and that's why a lot of us protect ourselves from it. After a little while, we kind of get jaded. We don't let ourselves hope too much because the more we hope, the more we're going to be disappointed. And so what we do is we protect our hearts. We just kind of make sure our expectations are lowered because if we let our expectations get too high, it only increases the level, the, the pain uh, that comes with the, the disappointment. So here's the deal. Let's just, what I want you to get, hope is involved in every epic moment of life because hope is involved in every moment of life. Hope is like the air we breathe. It, it, it is what powers our muscles. Everything you do in life is motivated, motivated by and toward hope. Everything you do. Sometimes it's epic. Sometimes it's world-changing. Sometimes it's huge. Sometimes it's just, you know, tiny. But everything we do is, is motivated by hope. Take a look at this diagram, first of, first of them. If you don't like it, just ignore it. Um, what I'm trying to show here is that essentially all of us hope in a very similar way. This is the very human way of hoping. We're at the center. We have a desire for something we don't have, and we need to travel through that desire to get to the joy of fulfillment. Now, that could be anything. Those little arrows could represent um, something incredibly significant, like, like you're just yearning for that boyfriend or that girlfriend or the perfect person to marry or the baby or, or, or health or, or a career that is satisfying or the bonus, right? It can be insignificant. The cup of coffee, right? You get up in the morning, you're like, oh, I'm just hoping for that cup of coffee because you want the perfect cup of coffee. You need the perfect cup of coffee, right? And so whatever it is, those little arrows just represent all the little things, right? You hope someone's going to look at you. You hope someone's going to notice you. You hope someone says something kind about you. You hope, I mean, we're, we're just driven by desire. We have desires that want to be satisfied, and we want, to, we want those things to be satisfied because as they're satisfied, we experience joy. The more of those things that are satisfied, the more joy we have in our life, right? That's the natural way to experience hope. There are a couple problems that come with this. First, this is incredibly self-centered. <laughs> this is incredibly self-centered, but let's just be honest. We are incredibly self-centered, right? Let's not try and fool anybody. Oh, Steve, I'm, I'm really into social stuff. You know, I, I lay down hundreds of hours, uh, human sexual trafficking, whatever. Let's pick the, the social issue of the day, okay? I'm not mocking that. That's a worthy thing to lay down your life for. That's a worthy thing to invest time into to ending. Let me ask you something. Why are you investing that time? Is it truly because you love those people or is it because you love to feel significant? You have a desire for your life to mean something and you have more joy when your life means something. You understand what I'm saying? Our hope is incredibly self-centered. Even when we're laying down our lives for others, we're doing it for ourselves. 
because it makes us feel good about ourselves. It tells us a story about ourselves. We want to hear. It makes us look good when we look in the mirror. There are things about it that just, it's, there's an, a very self-centered nature to our hope. The second thing is that this hope always disappoints. Always. Like we know it disappoints when, when it, we don't get to what we want, right? Um, but what I want to tell you is that even when we get what we desire, our hope disappoints. Go ahead and throw up the next chart. The little arrows that curve back to self. Those are areas where you're traveling through desire, but you don't get to the fulfillment of it. It's taken away from you before you get to the joy. And, and, and the others actually get you to the joy. All of that is disappointment. Let me tell you why. You got up this morning. You made yourself a perfect cup of coffee. Perfect. You know, like better than ever. Best cup of coffee ever. Did you just check that off your list? Perfect cup of coffee, Done. Never need it again. Did you do that? No. Why? Because that perfect cup of coffee didn't satisfy permanently. Even your joys fulfilled don't satisfy completely. Even when you get the thing you want, like, like some of you are, are really are just like crazy baseball fans. It's an idol in your life, and you really, I'm, I will finally be happy if, if the Cardinals win back-to-back World Series. That's, that's great. That's great. What are you going to do next year? You're going to tell me that that's going to completely satisfy you? It's really not. You know why? Because even when your desires are satisfied, you're not fulfilled. Because every human desire is a pointer to our need for a greater fulfillment. You're not satisfied permanently with that cup of coffee in the morning because you were never designed to be completely and perfectly satisfied with a cup of coffee. That cup of coffee is meant to point you to something greater. That experience of wanting something, and then having that fulfilled is simply meant to point you to your greater desire for something permanent, something lasting, something eternal that will eternally fulfill. Human hope always disappoints even when it's fulfilled. Because even when we get what we want, it's not what we truly want. And we keep lying to ourselves saying that it is. If I can just, have you ever done this? If I could just get a better boyfriend, if I could just get married, if I could just get a better job, if I could just get an A, if I could just get a car that doesn't keep breaking down, if I could just stop arguing with my mother, if I could just... And then you get whatever it is that you are just waiting for. How long does it take for you to need the next thing? Like a nanosecond? If you're lucky, a minute, right? This is the story of Christmas, right? Every Christmas, I just need a bike. And then you get the bike. And then you're like, oh, I got a bike. Okay. Now I need a gun. <laughs> All right, and then you get the gun. Oh, now I need... You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's the story of our lives. Every human hope disappoints, even if we get with desire. That's why Frederick Nietzsche said this. Brilliant guy. Don't agree with him on most of what he, what he said, but this is what he said very insightful. He says, hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. What he's saying there is, is every time you have a hope fulfilled, it just makes you hope more, but it's never going to lead to ultimate fulfillment. So that's actually evil. 
It's creating an appetite in you that will never be fed. See, the problem is Nietzsche envisioned a world without God. He envisioned a world without an ultimate fulfillment. The gospel is a message of ultimate fulfillment. So what does it mean to have our hope redeemed by the gospel? What does it mean for us to be able to hope in a gospel-centered, God-honoring, truly fulfilling way? Well, the simple answer is this, you guys. We need to replace what's at the center of the diagram. We need to replace what's in the center of the circle. That doesn't need to be self there. That needs to be God. God needs to be at the center. Our hopes shouldn't just be about fulfilling our desires. God's glory should be more important to us than our happiness. God's glory should be more important to us than our joy. Why? Because ultimately, God is the center of all that's glorious. Why do you think you love coffee? Makes me awake. That's great. Okay. But there's something about the experience. Why do you love sunsets? Why do you love... Because there's something beautiful about those things. And you were designed to crave the beauty that those things give you a taste of. Where do you think that beauty came from? It came from God, the creator of everything. Every glory in this world is simply a reflection of a greater glory that's rooted in God. God needs to be the center of all things because He is the one that is truly glorious. He is the one that is truly the source that can fulfill all of our greatest desires. We were never meant to be at the center. And in fact, when we try to shove ourselves into the center, when we try to take His throne, we're our own worst enemy. Because ultimately what we're saying is we're going to turn to all of the reflections of God to find our ultimate need for God. And they never can. We need to get self out of the center. We need to have God's glory at the center. To, to help me um, explain this, I'm going to flip over to Romans 5. I'm going to invite you to turn over there with me. Um, it's going to be left from Ephesians. We're going over to page 942 in our black Bibles. Um, so if you have one of our Bibles, it's page 942. And I'm going over to Romans chapter 5, because Romans chapter 5 has some profound things to say about the nature of hope. And I think it's going to be enlightening to us as we work our way through um, our discussion. All right, in Romans chapter 5, Paul is going to work just like he does in Ephesians. He's going to work from what is true to how it should impact us. So this is what he's going to say is here's the truth of the gospel, and here's how it'll work out in your life. So in Romans 5, 1, therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, very simply what he's saying is, if you believed in Jesus, you've been declared right by God. The judge of the universe looks at you and says, your account is clean. You have no offense left. Why? Because Jesus took it. Jesus took your place in judgment so that you could stand in his place in blessing. You've been justified, declared right by God because you've believed the gospel. You simply said, God, you are who you say you are, and you've done what you said you've done. I trust that Jesus was my substitute. So therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the natural outflow. We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer at war with God. God's no longer our greatest problem in the universe. He was because He was the just judge, and our sin required judgment. Since our sin was judged in Christ, we have peace with God. This is a profound statement that we can now come as friends and allies into the presence of God, not because of what we've done for Him, but because of what Christ has done for us. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand. Not only have you been brought into a place of peace, you now stand in a position of grace. As a follower of Christ, you stand at the very heart of the delight of God. When God looks at you, He sees Jesus. If you have believed in Jesus, you are covered in His righteousness, in what makes Him glorious and perfect. When God looks at you, you stand in that place. And what that means is that you stand in a place of God's undeserved, unearned, unending favor. He's simply pouring out His favor on you. You didn't earn it by what you've done. You can't lose it by what you do. It is completely based on Christ's record for you, not your record for God. All right, that's the truth of the gospel. He's unpacking it. He's saying, all right, let me just remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you of the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. So as a believer of Christ, that's true of you. Now let's talk about what that means. Because of this, we rejoice in what? Going to heaven? That that someday we'll be delivered from this world? That, That... um, God's going to save my marriage, that, that suddenly I'm going to be happy. What do I rejoice in? The hope of the glory of God. Because the gospel is true, I have a greater hope than what I used to have. I used to be all about me. I used to be all about my happiness, all about my success, all about my reputation, all about people looking up to me. It was all about me building my kingdom. But I realize now it's not about me and my kingdom. It's about God and His kingdom. He's the glorious one. I'm not. He's the one at the center. I just revolve around Him. He is the the one that, that is the source of all that is beautiful and good and fulfilling. So I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word rejoice is awesome. It, 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 sometimes translators translate it rejoice. Sometimes they translate it boast because you boast about what you rejoice in, right? You guys been on Facebook lately? You know, if you're a Cardinals fan, there's a very thin line between rejoicing and boasting. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're on there, you're just boasting. Why? Because you boast about what you love. You boast about your joy. You talk about where your joy is. You, you delight you, to talk about You rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You boast about the hope of the glory of God. We now have a hope that is rooted in God's glory, not ours. That at the end of the day, His name will be great, not mine. At at the end of the day, people are going to see Him as the center, glorious one, not me. That, That means every good thing that I accomplish in my life doesn't make me good. It simply reflects the goodness of God. And every bad thing in my life is simply covered by His glory because Jesus died for me. He is the one that gets all the glory. He is the one that gets all the attention. His name is made great. I rejoice, I boast in my hope being rooted in the glory of God. And the outgrowth of that, take a look at what happens here, you guys. More than that, or because of that, or as an outgrowth of that, we rejoice in what? That God makes everything right in our lives? What do we rejoice in? You're looking at it. Suffering. (laughs) Suffering. Let's be honest, you guys. This is at least a hard saying. And for most of us, if we were really honest about it, we'd say it was stupid. Oh, no, Steve, man, I I read this. I'm like, oh, I'm totally with you, God. I rejoice in my suffering. I'm a cheerleader for Jesus. That's great until you suffer. And then what do you do? Oh, I start wondering if God even loves me. I question whether, you know what I'm saying? 
What does that mean to actually rejoice, to boast in our sufferings? What that means is this, you guys. Look at the, go ahead and go to that next diagram. Life is going to disappoint us. We, we have a lot of things in life that, that ultimately disappoint us. But when our hope is in the glory of God, that hope will always be fulfilled. Because God will glorify himself in anything and everything, even your failure. That hope fulfills. In fact, that's what he goes on and says. Look at this, you guys. Our endure, um, more than that, we rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in our, let's reword, reword our disappointment. Because that's what disappointment is. It's suffering. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And, and we even rejoice in our disappointments. Why? Because we know that our disappointments, our suffering produces endurance. In other words, it's a, this is a word, endurance, that means to be able to bear up under. It doesn't mean that God takes you out of a situation. It means He leave, leaves you there and He gives you the strength. Like, like, this is an incredibly crushing heavy load that I don't think I can bear, but by the grace of God, holy cow, I'm standing up straight. He doesn't deliver you from it. He gives you the strength, right? He, he, he gives you an endurance to be disappointed well. And out of that endurance, He produces character. In other words, he changes who you are. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is, is he doesn't just save who you are, he changes who you are. He loves us as we are, but he's not going to leave us as we are. He's going to change us to be like Jesus. And disappointment and suffering are one of the prime tools he uses in our lives to push us back into hoping for the glory of God. Because when we're disappointed in the things that we're longing for in this world, it pushes us back. And it helps us realign our hearts because in that disappointment, we have to say, is God glorified even in this? Can God make his name great even in this? Is he bigger than this situation? Is he more powerful than the enemies that are against me? Is his name more glorious than mine in this moment? Yes. And in that, I find joy because he's the all-glorious one. It produces character. See, what it's doing is it's making us more like Jesus. That's what it means to develop character. It means that he's changing us to be more like the one that we love, Christ himself. So endurance produces character, and character produces, I love this, hope. Our hope in the glory of God gives us the ability to be disappointed well. When we're disappointed well, God uses that to actually shape us to be more like Jesus. As we're being shaped to be more like Jesus, that actually gives us a greater capacity for genuine hope. It doesn't make us more self-protective. It makes us less self-protective. It doesn't make us more prone to despair. It makes us more prone to a greater hope. <laughs> this is a hope. Like, like the normal cycle of human hope is you hope, you're disappointed, you hope less. You hope, you hope you're disappointed, you hope less. You move into self-protection, you lower your expectations. As you push into this, God's only going to increase your expectations for the glory of God. He is only going to increase your appetite for change to be more like Jesus. Your hope will not disappoint. In fact, that's what he says in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. In other words, our hope isn't going to let us down. This hope never disappoints. This is a hope that's fundamentally different than human hope because it never fails because it's actually rooted in the character and in the strength of God. And God never fails to glorify His own name. 
And when we see him as the glorious center, the one that is worthy of all praise, all honor, all worship, and we see ourselves as those who revolve around him, we will never be disappointed in him glorifying himself. And this is only made possible at the end of that verse because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Again, we see the role of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what God's done for us in Jesus. We're going to come back to this idea of love in a minute. It's incredibly important, but but we're going to come back to this. What I want you to see is that as you're a follower of Christ, you have a hope that is fundamentally different than a human hope. I mean, I'm not trying to be super spiritual, like like weirdly hyper-spiritual here. You still hope to fall in love. You still hope to marry somebody. You still hope to have kids. You still hope to have a career. You still hope to have a, a good life. I mean, those are all normal and healthy hopes. There's nothing wrong with those things. What I'm saying is that as a follower of Christ, I have a hope that's deeper than those hopes, a foundation for those hopes, and that is that ultimately God will get His glory from my life. That God's holiness, His character will be lifted up and His name will be made great through me, even though I am broken and sinful. But, but through the work of Jesus in redeeming and restoring me, His name will be made great even through me. If that's the foundation of my hope, I'll never be disappointed because He will ultimately fulfill that desire because He always glorifies Himself. And what that means is that under every suffering, there's a joy for the follower of Christ. Under every disappointment, there's a joy to be discovered. And if you've been a Christ follower for long, I think you've realized this already. Have you ever been deeply, deeply disappointed because one of your human hopes failed to be fulfilled? And in that processing of disappointment, God brought you around to a realization that His purpose for you is greater than that thing that you were hoping for. And out of that, you actually experienced greater joy. Like it actually increased your awareness of your joy in the glory of God. Not because your hope was fulfilled, because your hope was re-centered on the glory of God. And you realize that that's actually a greater joy than the one you were pursuing. You guys, listen to me. This is one of the key blessings of the gospel. It is the only thing that ultimately explains the behavior of Christ followers. It's the only thing that explains the behavior of Peter. Peter in the New Testament, man, he gets this incredible news of the gospel. Like, Like, he's a beggar who found bread. And he's like, you guys, I got bread. It's incredible. You need this. You want this. I'm eating it and it's wonderful, right? He's just out there telling people about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And he's just excited. And he's, he's you know, and, and there's people that don't like it. The religious leaders feel incredibly threatened by this new message of grace because it's undermining their ability to religiously control people. So what do they do? They take Peter and the other disciples and they imprison them and they beat them. And there's this really weird sentence in, in the book of Acts where they release Peter and these guys go home bloodied, <laughs> bloodied, beaten. And you know what it says? They walked home rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. That makes no sense. Who hopes to be beaten? Who goes home and says, yes, I'm bloody. Well, I don't know, maybe some weirdo, right? Um, this doesn't make sense. I mean, who wants to be rejected and beaten and abused? They did. You know why? Not because they're masochists, but because they have a hope that is greater than their hope for security, their hope for the glory of God. They were convinced that God was going to glorify himself, make his name great through their suffering. And he did. 
He actually exploded the growth of the early church as people looked at these people and were like, who are you? There's something about your life that is fundamentally different than mine. You have a hope I don't understand. How can you still be filled with joy? You're not getting all the things I need to be happy. How can you still have joy? See, what that did is it simply opened up doors for the gospel. God's name was glorified through their suffering. We have a hope that is greater than our human hopes. This is the hope that gave the Philippians in the early church the ability to give beyond their means. The Philippians were this group of people in Macedonia. Paul had shared the gospel there, and they became believers. But they were impoverished. They, I mean, they lived in poverty. They were rejected by their community. They lived in poverty. Paul is taking up a collection for a bunch of other poor Christians um, in Jerusalem. Guess who gave the most out of all the churches? The Philippians, the ones who were impoverished. They gave above and beyond their means to give. How do you explain that? It's only explainable if we understand that their hope isn't in their own security. Their hope isn't in their own ability to financially provide for them. Their hope is in the God who provides the finances. Their hope is in the glory of God. They're thrilled that they get to give to the glory of God, that God's name is going to be glorified and made, made, made great because they're sacrificing for other believers. That makes no sense from a human hope perspective. It makes perfect sense when we understand that their hope was in the glory of God. This is the only way to explain Paul. Paul is this guy, man, what a crazy story. He's persecuting the church and, and, and you know, Jesus shows up in this flash of light. He's like, you want to pick and fight with me, really, Paul? Paul's like, yeah, I don't think so. He's like, I don't think so either. So I'm, I'm going to teach you a lesson by pouring out my grace on you. <laughs> I'm going to teach you a lesson by, by making you one of the greatest examples of, of somebody who's completely messed up, but gets redeemed and restored because I'm that great of a savior. Paul's like, okay, I'm in, right? And he's in. And, and he fills him with great power. Paul had a ministry that was incredible. Like he could walk up to somebody that was hurt, like legitimately walk and just be like, you're healed, right? Like, like he could be like, yeah, I, spirit, why don't you go heal? You know, he just had this incredible power. You know what? Paul had a, what he called a thorn in the flesh. We're not told exactly what it was, but I think it was a physical ailment of some sort, something that made travel very difficult for him, painful for him. Because he spent his life traveling and spreading the gospel. And he had this thorn in his flesh, the thing that, that, handicapped him, that hurt him. And he pleaded with God to take it away. He said specifically three times, like this is the guy that can heal everybody around him. And he's pleading with God, heal me. And God says, no. And instead of getting filled with bitterness and self-pity and anger, he praises God for the thorn in the flesh. That doesn't make sense unless you understand that his hope wasn't rooted in the same things that normal people... His, his hope had been revolutionized by the gospel. He hoped in the glory of God. He was convinced that God would get more glory out of his life with his suffering than without it. And that gave him joy in the suffering. He could have joy in the pain. I mean, the God was going to be glorified as a result of it. It's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense of the harm story. I've talked about the Harms before, and some of you have followed their blog. The Harms are a family over in St. Louis. I, I met them at the Journey when I worked there as a pastor. And um, beautiful family. I mean, I just love those guys. Um, cute. Here's their, their story. I mean, in a nutshell, they've, they've had some difficulty with their kids. And they had a daughter that was born with a genetic defect that, that basically terminal. She was going to die. I mean, the, it's, the, the story is, is ironic in the sense that he is... a. 
geneticist, and he's the one that actually diagnosed his baby's condition before anybody else because he's the one that had the medical knowledge to actually diagnose it. And, and, and she was going to, um, this baby was going to die. And they pleaded every day with God to spare her life. Was that real hope? Yeah. Did they really plead with God to spare her life? Absolutely. Every day. She died on her first birthday. God took her home on her first birthday. You know what their reaction was? A beautiful outpouring of praise to God. The only thing that makes sense of that is that they had a hope that was fundamentally different than the human hope that we're so used to. I don't know how the death of a one-year-old glorifies God. I can't explain that. But I am convinced that there is a God who can. I am convinced that God is bigger than my understanding, that He is more powerful than the way I would shape things, that He will tell a better story for my life than I would tell for myself, and that His glory is the true center of the universe. And if He is glorified, I rejoice. It's the only thing that explains this radical kind of hope. Now, here's the deal, you guys. This kind of hope seems threatening. Let's just be honest. You've got to really give up a lot of control of your life. <laughs> Not like you really have it anyway, but you've got to give up your perceived control of your life to give God this kind. You know, you're like, like I'm going to trust you more than I trust myself. I am going to, I mean, really, I mean, theoretically, this sounds wonderful. God's holiness is more important than my happiness. That's a great theory. Really hard to live out in real life, isn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. We are driven by a need to be happy. We have, we're driven by a need for joy. God put that in us. And it's really hard for us to trust God. But here's the deal, you guys. What I want you to hear is that the hope that we're talking about is the most freeing hope possible. This is the hope that will give you the ability to work in a dead-end job that makes absolutely no difference in the world and still do it with joy because you're doing it for the glory of God. You'll be able to do the most menial tasks with joy knowing that God is glorified in that because you're simply doing it for His glory. There is no greater purpose for doing anything in life. And so the most menial, insignificant task all of a sudden becomes infused with purpose because it's for the glory of God. This will give you the strength to fight for a marriage that's failing. A marriage where there's no joy and no reward, where everything is just difficult and, and it's just thorns everywhere you turn. This kind of hope gives you the ability with joy to fight for your marriage for the glory of God, not for your personal happiness. I'm not saying you don't desire your personal happiness. You do, but you desire something more deeply, and that is that God's name will be glorified. That frees you from self-protection. That frees you from, from, from the bitterness that is bound to come as you are disappointed in your human hope because you are continually driven back to the joy of a God who glorifies himself in spite of our brokenness. This is the hope that's going to give you the ability to process your divorce. This is the hope that's going to give you the ability to process people who loved you and failed you or even betrayed you. Because your ultimate hope isn't in their love, it's in God's. Your ultimate hope isn't in your happiness and human relationships. Your ultimate hope is that God will get glorified through your human relationships, as painful as sometimes those are. This is the hope that will give you the calm assurance to sit still and wait for God 
when everything in you is screaming for action. Because your greatest hope isn't in your ability to accomplish or do anything. Your greatest hope is in the fact that he already has and he will continue to do so. It is a hope that frees. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it at first because you kind of have to die to yourself to get there. You have to get yourself off the throne. You have to get yourself out of the center. So how do we do that? Let's just, how do we do that? Let's get practical. There's only one way I know of, and that's we have to be rescued by love. We have to be rescued by love. Love is the only thing that can free us from the death spiral of a self-centered, self-focused hope. And we know this in our human relationships, right? The first time you, you, you get a crush on somebody or you genuinely fall in love with somebody, you actually find yourself putting them at the center instead of yourself. You ever notice that? Like all of a sudden you're sacrificing for them and it doesn't hurt. It does, <laughs> but it doesn't hurt as much. You know why? Because it's going to make them happy. And you want to bring them joy. Love delivers you from self-centered hope. All of a sudden, you hope for someone else's joy over your own, right? This is the only thing that explains the insanity of parenting, right? You guys aren't parents yet, some of you. You're like, I don't get it. Yeah, you will, right? A kid that wakes up every two hours and has to be fed. A kid that screams every time he wants to communicate with you. A kid that is nothing but need, the only thing that explains our ability to go through that with joy is love. We love this child, and it's a delight for us to get up in the middle of the night and sit in the rocker again, right? Why? Love gives us the ability to put somebody else in the center of the circle. My hope is no longer for my good. It's for my child's good. It's for my spouse's good. It's for my friend's good. It's for my parents' good. Human love has powerful. But here's the deal, you guys. The redemptive power of human love is limited in both scope and duration. What that means is that human love can only deliver you from self-centered hope so far. It can give you a taste of eternal redemption, but it can't give you the full redemption because there's a natural gravitation to the human heart back to self-centeredness. You'll only sacrifice for that person so long until you're going to start wondering, is the sacrifice worth what I'm getting back? And eventually you're going to realize it's not. And in that moment, what you're going to do is you're going to start resenting the very person that you love because they're shoving into the center of the circle that now you want to be in. And your hope now, again, becomes based on what is best for me, what makes me happy, what brings me joy. And you come to resent your children and you come to resent your spouse and you come to resent your friends because you're no longer at the center. The natural gravitation of the sinful heart is always to go back to the center. That's why we need the expulsive power of the love of God. Listen to me, you guys, followers of Christ. If your heart is not continually undone by the love of God, you will come to resent Him. Because you will, you will be disappointed in your life and you'll look at God and say, you could have you fixed this. You could have avoided this. You could have done something different and you didn't. And we're going to fill the gap with distrust, with resentment and self-pity. The only thing that cures that is love. And what we need is the eternal love of God that explodes and destroys our sinful self-love. 
What does that mean? It means this, that if you really want to move into this kind of hope, you need to be undone by the gospel. You need to look at how God has loved you until it provokes you to love Him back. Scripture tells us we love God because He first loved us. We don't love God because we choose to. We don't love God because, oh yeah, we think He's worthwhile. We love Him because He has demonstrated His love to us so palpably, so clearly, so powerfully that it provokes love in response. We need to see the supernatural love of the gospel and we need the Spirit of God to open our eyes to it. You guys, look at Jesus. Jesus on the cross is the clearest demonstration to you of the love of God. A holy, infinitely perfect God, the judge of the entire universe, the one in whom all is right, didn't look at us in our brokenness and shake his head or in disappointment or in anger or or in eternal frustration. Instead, he loved us and so fully identified with us that Jesus became one of us And though he was perfect, he died a sinner's death. He took my place in judgment. The Holy Son of God was made sin and was destroyed and crushed by the justice of God so that I could be justified. I could be declared right. I could be forgiven. And I now stand in the righteousness he earned for me. If that does not stir your heart to love, you don't believe the gospel. Uh, or maybe you do, but you don't enough. That's why we need to keep bringing ourselves back to the heart of the message so that we can be provoked to love the one that we are being drawn to. And it's only in that love that we'll come to trust him enough to take ourselves out of that center to actually say the glory of God is more important to me than my happiness because I trust him. He has shown me his heart and it is infinitely trustworthy. Yes, nothing frees us more radically, more profoundly than the hope of the glory of God. And nothing satisfies us more deeply. I'm going to put some questions on the screen and we're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to ask you to pray. And let the Spirit of God um, awaken your heart to the profound beauty of the gospel. We're also going to take our offering, and we see this as a response of worship. This is our way of joyfully just worshiping God with the resources that He's entrusted to us, because we partner together as the people of God to advance the cause of the gospel in our community so that more lives can be changed, more people can hear the truth, more people can be engaged. I mean, this is our way of partnering in joy to worship God and, and just carry the mission of the gospel forward. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, if, if you're just a guest with us, I don't want you to feel obligated to give. I, I would love you to give us the worship response card that's in your bulletin. Let us know you were here. We would love to pray with you and for you if you have things to pray about. But drop that in the basket when it comes around because we would love to, to just connect with you in that way. Let me pray for us. We'll, we'll move into a time of response and we'll share communion in a moment. Father, we thank you that you are a beautiful God, that you truly are the source of all that is glorious. And part of your glory is your infinite, humble love. 
that you love us even though we want to kick you off your throne. You love us even though we want to take your place at the center of all things. You love us even though we continually try to take your place. And you demonstrated that love by taking our place. You demonstrated that love by identifying so fully with our brokenness that you were crushed so that we could be made whole. Father, undo our hearts. Send your spirit to open our eyes to the beauty of this, that we might walk away in just an overflowing, humble, exuberant gratitude for who you are and what you've done. And then from that place of humble gratitude to be freed from our self-centered hope and to walk in the hope of your glory. Speak to my friends, Lord. You know where they are. You know what they're struggling with. You know the disappointments they've dealt with. You know the pain they're trying to process. Spirit, you know exactly where they are, and I pray that you will meet them with the hope of the gospel, that you will ignite their hearts to a better future than they can plan for themselves as they simply come to to have faith in you, to trust you, and to love you.